I think as parents, we assume that kids are going to just know the right way to do things. You have to teach them first and then train them by teaching them to do it over and over again until they actually get it. Imagine trying to teach your child how to tie his shoes without the practice principle. If the practice principle is vital for teaching such morally neutral task as tying shoes, how much more important is it for training children in Christ-like character? I speak to parents all the time who come up to me and they see what's happening, but they don't know what to do. And I just want to stand up and say, you can do this. Here is a solution. This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show and thanks for being here. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. So we are here to uh, answer listener questions about A River Runs Through It, the great Norman McLean novella that we've been reading the last three weeks or so. And we had questions come in by email, which if you want to do that in the future, you can do as well by emailing us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Some people send us questions on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, which you can do at closereadspods on those two platforms. And then you can also, of course, send in your questions, as most of our questioners do, through the Facebook group. And you can join that Facebook group if you have yet to do so by searching Close Reads in that little search bar on Facebook. Let the algorithm do the work and then click that join button. And we will, uh, assuming you don't seem suspicious, let you in and... As I've said before, it will be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. But we are here to discuss uh, Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It. We're here to answer questions. And this first question I want to dive right into. And this one came from Sarah via email. And this relates to something that you and I left off with last week, Tim, after Heidi went to go teach her class. And she asks, what did happen to Paul's hand? (laughs) Did the murderers break it as an act of cruelty? Did Paul go all out defending himself and break it in an attempt to survive? Um, and then she mentions, had he survived, could he have even survived without fishing, which he probably would never, wouldn't have been able to do anyway, given that his hand was all uh, beat up. So this is the very end of the story. And um, Tim, you, you seem to be saying something about last week about... Ha- well, I'll let, you just, I'll let you just jump in here. What, what do you think about this? And then how you can uh, fight him about it. Perfect. <laughs> I think it's a mystery, so I don't think I don't think it, there's an answer, and I think it's deliberately a mystery. So I think you know, second to last page of the book, Paul's father asks Norman um, about you know like how he broke his hand, and Norman doesn't really have an answer. So as a reader, we're left to kind of conjecture about why all of the bones in his right hand his casting hand were broken. That's, I think, the mystery. And the father is kind of hoping that maybe, you know, Paul kind of stumbled into a fight in an alley somewhere. And while Norman doesn't dispute that, it does not seem like that's a likelihood. It seems more likely that it it had to do with um, the men who killed him. But what, how the exactly the bones in his right hand were broken? Yeah, the criminals he got involved with. But how exactly his right hand was 
broken. All of the bones were broken. Why did that happen? That's a mystery. I have a theory, but I think it's a mystery. Well, what's your theory? My theory is that the men who killed him knew that he was an exemplary fisherman and it was an act of extreme cruelty. Mm-hmm. They wanted to like, even if he survived, they wanted to make sure that he would never be able to fish another day in his life. So the, the person, did Sarah ask that question, David? Yeah. 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 Sarah. Um, she suggested that as a possibility. And that's the one that I, that's, I, I think that's, that's my best guess. Where do you stand on this, Heidi? Well, to be honest, I I didn't think too terribly much about it. I made some assumptions about this particular part. And the assumptions that I made were that he was, that Paul was murdered by his criminal associates because he owed them money or uh, something along that lo- those lines and that they broke his hand. But I... I didn't, I thought way more about what that kind of represents. Like I didn't dig too much into trying to decipher and follow the clues and figure out exactly what happened to him because as Tim pointed out, it is left deliberately ambiguous. Mm. Uh, And I think we can fill in the blanks to a certain extent, but um, either he wants to leave that as a mystery as a, you know, dot, 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 dun, dun, dun. um, Or (laughs) the other possibilities that he doesn't want us to focus on it. He doesn't want it to necessarily be the point of that uh, of that anecdote, but he wants us to kind of go behind that and look at the broken hand as representative of the broken nature of the art with Paul being gone and, and, and all that. But I'm curious what you thought, David. Did you come to the same conclusion, the same assumption that Tim and I made? What? No, I didn't really. I, I, it's interesting because I, I didn't view it as like some sort of act of cruelty that was perpetrated on him so much as um, that he hurt his hand. Uh, all his fingers were broken because he was, he was fighting them off. Like he was, as he was getting attacked, he was huh. you know, swinging wildly as you might have. But I, I was thinking about how um, maybe he was, you know, the, if you're going to punch someone and you're supposed to do it in a specific way so you don't break your hand, right? So then there probably was a desperation, like a like a, huh. a sort of wildness to the way that he was punching, if this is, if my theory is true, which would have been in some ways or in almost every way, the polar opposite to the sort of control that he exhibited, the sort of artistry that he exhibited with that same hand when casting, right? He didn't do it wildly. There was a sort of precision to the way that he operated with it that would have been uh, sort of the opposite of punching wildly but as tim mentioned there's this there's this bit where the the dad keeps bringing up you know what what happened to him and he says well nearly all the bones in his hand are broken and it says that his dad brought that up you know periodically um and there's there's this bit where it said okay so it says from time to time paul's right hand had to be reaffirmed which is a fascinating phrase right there um then my father would shuffle away again. He, w- he could not shuffle in a straight line from trying to lift his feet. And then it says, like many Scottish ministers before him, he had to derive what comfort he could from the faith that his son had died fighting. So that's where I get the idea that he broke his hand fighting. But I mean, I guess it could just be read that that's what the father is hoping. Because it talks there about the notion that he was, that he was fighting. So it almost reads right. to me like Norman is making that assumption too. But it could just be that he's, let it, he's allowing his father to believe that 
so that he has some peace, some comfort about the whole situation. So I buy what you do, the theory you guys are saying. I just read it in the moment as the idea of that he was, he was huh. broke his hands because he was fighting back. Because it says that he was beaten to death by the butt of a revolver and his body was dumped in an alley. Mm-hmm. Um, which has really dropped on us in a really sudden way. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I guess at this point, though, this stuff is all just theory, right? Um, right. There's a question from Mark that I want to jump into, and this is a little bit of a complicated one. Um, and it's got two parts to it. So let's see if we can at least give it a little bit of attention. Mark writes uh, again via email. He says, given the attention that Norman, our narrator, plays to Paul's artistry as a fly fisherman, might the theme of fallen idols be at play in this book? And he says, Mark says, by that I mean, is Norman unable or refusing to reach further into Paul's life? Because in doing so, that will require too blatant an affront to such a superhuman fly fisherman. He's, he puts fly fisher there at the, uh, in parentheses. So let's, I want to touch on that first part of the question first before I even bring up the second bit. Um, Heidi, so the idea of fallen idols, what do you think of this question? Is, do you think that, that maybe that's a, something that's at play in this book, given that Norman kind of doesn't really dive in too deeply? He doesn't want to sort of tear down the, the, um, the the stature of his brother more than is absolutely necessary to tell the story. Right. I think given the, this is a really interesting question. Like uh, Mark, I, I applaud you. I, I, this is a, this is a fascinating kind of conjecture because I think even though I've never interpreted the story that way in, in the last couple of weeks, um, in these conversations that it, it does work. I think you can make a case for this because of the theological framework of the book um, in which there's these connections made between fishing and theology, specifically Presbyterian theology, um, which does... Uh, in is Calvinist in a lot of ways and does kind of focus on this idea of the, of innate depravity um, and the removal then of idols consistently in our lives. And so I think you can make the case that Norman, I, um, idolizes. Yes. Um, his brother, uh, because of the fishing and that, that, and then that makes him, um, ignore, these what to us are really obvious warning signs about his character. Now, I don't think that's the only interpretation though. I th- and if that's there, it's hidden really carefully. And um, and I, I think you'd have to reach pretty far to make that case. Mm. So Tim, do you want to add anything to this? Because there is a second part of the question that I, it might be worth touching on. Do you, have any, do you want to add anything? I, to I just want to make sure I understand understand the question okay it is the, the idol would be paul um it would be paul and it's not paul's art is that right i mean i can hear the question as maybe norman doesn't want to press paul too much because um he it's not paul that he idolizes but it's Paul's incredible gift with the fly rod. 
You know, I is don't that think possible... that's what, I don't think that's how the question okay. what the question is, but I actually think that's a really interesting okay. answer to the question. Point. It's a great point. Because he seems to be saying that he I mean, if you add the that layer of what you're saying to him, then the question seems to be, does Norman conflate Paul falsely with fishing? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. I, I don't see that either. Yeah. I I think Norman looks up. I think Norman is awed by Paul's great artistry, his great skill in the way that I am in awe and impressed by the things that David and Heidi do really well. I admire those things. I look up to those things. And I think for Norman, when he looks at Paul, I think it's the juxtaposition of the sort of trouble that he's getting in with this kind of incandescent art that Paul practices. That juxtaposition is the kind of, um, that's what gives spark to this book. Like, how can this incredible incredibly talented artist also be guilty of just kind of like slumming his life away in these kind of gambling, this gambling game. Mm. I think so. And I think that Norman sees both of those things very clearly. And I don't think that he diminishes Paul's shortcomings in any way. I don't see him diminishing Paul's shortcomings because he respects Paul's artistry so much. Yeah, I think I agree with that. There's an interesting second part to this question that I, th- I think is worth bringing up now that, that Mark Mark sends. He says, Paul struggles to speak directly about himself and his need, re- need for redemption. I think, do we accept that thesis, that, that claim that Paul has yeah. a hard time speaking directly about himself? Okay. So then it says, yeah. um, this impedes Paul uh, and Norman from saving Paul. I think the idea is... Um, Norman and his father from saving Paul. I think that's what the question is saying. But then with regards to that issue, here's the question. Is McLean wrestling with the theology of redemption being a solo project and one that a person must give himself or herself to? So that's the end of the question. But ostensibly then I, I suppose Mark is saying, since Paul is not able to do that, is that one of the reasons why he sort of has this downfall? Like, like redemption is a solo project. Someone's got to give themselves over to it young Paul is not able to do that. And so because of that, his brother and his father are unable to help him. What do you think of that idea, Heidi? Um, I, I think that that would be the typical um, kind of spiritualizing way of looking at the story. I don't think that's how Norman looks at the story. I think if you're reading it from the perspective of a traditional Presbyterian, or whatever, um, looking in, that's what, that, that, if that's an easy way of saying, well, Paul wasn't saved. I don't think that that's how the book is seeing it. I think that Norman is still Norman, the author and Norman, the narrator are wrestling still with the mystery of art, religion, nature, grace, um, and is unwilling to accept that particular um, way of categorizing Paul's life and death. Um, but that would be the traditional 
religious interpretation of it, for sure. I just don't see it as Norman's interpretation. Tim, I don't want to say too long on this one because we do have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, to kind of try to quote from the book, that Norman and his father believe that man is a fallen creature. So I'm going to echo what Heidi is saying, just in different words. Um, That man is fallen. What does the book say? He's a damned mess. Mm -hmm. Um, A point proved anytime you put a fly rod in his hand and that man can be redeemed. I mean, this is a departure. Let's be really clear Mm -hmm. from reformed theology that man can be redeemed by art, but art is hard. That is not traditional Reformed Presbyterian theology. And I get the impression, and I tried to articulate this last week in a kind of bumbling way. I think that Norman and his father both believe that they're kind of as one of them is through the church. It's through the special grace of Christ. And I think that they also think that there is something, maybe just in this world, or maybe also in the world to come, that there is some sort of redemption by natural means. And that natural means is art. And fly fishing is an exemplary art. And Paul had an exemplary ability with that art. So I, I think if you, if you, that could lead to all sorts of spiritual conundrums, right? Um, but I do think it is, I, I think that's what Norman and his father believe, that there's kind of like a natural means of grace that is redemptive. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Norman's father would preach that from the pulpit, though. Mm. Okay, we got to move on. Um, there are a lot, yeah. of, a lot of questions to address here. Okay, so this next question comes from Sarah gets lots asked lots of questions on, on all the books. Uh, she's got that little uh, coffee cup icon next to her name on Facebook. Conversation says, starter. Yeah, yeah. So Sarah asks, we knew something was going to happen to Paul, but did anyone else think something was going to happen to the wife as part of the story? Because there was at least one foretelling remark about the wife being dead that came early in the book and in close proximity to foretelling about Paul. I thought the tragedy that was coming would involve both of them. So why did the wife being dead make it into the foretelling or into the story, the retelling, I guess? Was Norman contrasting his relationship with his brother and his relationship with his wife? Neither one could help their brothers, and this seems to stand in contrast to their relationship to each other. Do you think she just answered her own question, or would you like to say more about that, Heidi? That's a, I mean, I, I wonder that same thing, Sarah. I, I had the same thought of what, what makes this matter. Some of it is narrative. It communicates to us that the author or the narrator is now an old man um, and that has experienced loss. And that I also had the same experience that you did in which I didn't know who was going to die. Like I felt like some tragedy was coming, but I didn't know what it was going to be. I thought maybe it was Neil. Um, I thought maybe it was the wife. I thought maybe their marriage would break up. Like I, I, there's something, you know, something bad's going to happen. It's a vague sense of dread, but um, I didn't know which character was going to be lost. And I kept thinking that would happen while he was fishing too. 
You mean so, that, she, that she would die or that Paul would die while he was fishing? Just somebody would die fishing. Like I oh, thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. like poetic justice, maybe he dies in a fishing accident, you know? Um, uh, so, and we've been wrong about him being the master all along and all that. Um, so I didn't know what was coming, but I think that that little anecdote or that little detail about the wife being dead just adds kind of a poignancy and a pathos to it. Um, and I wonder if that's why it's embedded within the narrative. Hmm. Tim, you want to add anything? Yeah, nothing to add. Nothing to add. Um, okay, this one's from Sarah. Tim, I'm going to ask, turn this one to you to answer first. Yeah. She says, at the end of the book, Norman's dad tells him he should, quote, make up a story and the people to go with it. Only then will you understand what happened and why. It is those who we live with and love and should know that elude us. That's the end of the quote. So she says, what does he mean? And if this story is Norman's attempt to do what his father tells him to do, then why did he write it in the style of a memoir instead of making it pure fiction? So is the way that Norman wrote the story another refusal to try to understand his brother as his father suggests it would? That, that's me adding that little aside there. Like when he wouldn't listen to the desk sergeant or is reluctant to lose his flies in the bushes. Is this ultimately why the story has to end with him being haunted? Hmm. So what does his father mean when he says you should make up a story and the people to go with it only then will you understand what happened and why? It, it, it seems to me to touch that part first that if that somehow by kind of like taking a step back and by writing a story about it, Norman will be free to see what happened in his own life. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, what does Aristotle say that the, that a poetry is higher than is a higher form than history mm. because history deals with the particular, but poetry with the universal and by poetry there, I think he means more than anything else really Homer. And I think Homer in a river runs through it, or you know, the Odyssey and River runs through it. I think are analogs for each other. I think that I don't want to say that Norman's father was somehow like making an Aristotle deep dive, but I do think that that kind of understanding of the poetic arts is one that I, and I think that it's one that fiction writers share. That there's something about fiction that can kind of universalize in a way that history is instructive because it's so particular. Mm. If that makes any sense. So, so, so why the, did he write it in the, go ahead, David. Well, no, go, no, go on, go on. What does it say? So why did he write it in the style of a memoir instead of making it pure fiction, i.e. using his name based on the father and brother care. Um, so clearly off his own father and brother. Ah, <laughs> I I don't know that I agree that it's a memoir. I think it's a piece of fiction. Um, but Sarah, you might say back to me, well, why is he using his own name in the narrative? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think I think there, that something probably close to this happened in Norman McLean's life. But I still don't know that, I still don't think it's a memoir. It wasn't published as a memoir. It was published as fiction. Um, so I don't know. I, I totally see 
it's a it's a it's a legit question. It's an insightful question. I think I'm just gonna absolve myself by saying I don't buy that the memoir. I think it's I think he took his father's advice um and wrote a piece of fiction. Heidi, you wanna add anything to this or do you wanna Yeah, I do. I I think that um, just to clarify what Sarah said, she does say style of memoir, like using real names, basing oh, I see, characters yeah. clearly off of his own father and brother. So instead of kind of taking his own feelings and grief about his brother's death and making up a story in which the characters feel that grief in a different situation, he actually tells his own story. And I, I felt that as I was reading it too. And I think the fact that he uses his own life to inspire this piece of fiction adds a depth and a paradox to the statement, it is those who we live with and love and should know that elude us. Like mm. he, he actually, I don't think he did take his father's advice. I think he said, no, I want to write my, I want to write my story and still, still mm. writing this true story. I still can't tell the true story, right? I still don't know. I still don't know and love Paul the way I should, even though I'm telling mm. his story. And that, mm. so it is still Paul that eludes him. And yet he clearly loves Paul more than anybody else in his life with the possible exception of his wife. And so mm. that is a very big, and that's why I think the, the the earlier question about the theological interpretation of 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 the story kind of based on the traditional reformed narrative just doesn't really work like you can make a case but i don't think it works because there's such a contemplation of mystery and this desire to love him rightly you know the god is love idea but really god just met my own family you know um, or at least that's how they interpreted it um so yeah, but that that statement is so powerful about the people we know with, that we live with and love that elude us, and still, even though he's telling you a story, Paul still eludes him. Mm. Mm. Heidi, that was a better answer than mine. But I, Sarah, I, think, I direct you toward <laughs> Heidi's answer, not mine. But I think I'm the serious. reason we're stumbling over this, like we've we've stumbled over several of our conversations, but I think that speaks to the greatness of this story. Like it does not, yeah. you, you can't just put theological constructs on, onto it. You can't put your own opinions onto it even. Like I just, it's, I'm like, oh, that's a great question. Wow. This is such a mysterious story. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. The end of the, the end of her question is, is interesting. Um, is the way that Norman wrote the story another refusal to try to truly try to understand his brother. And there's a lot of questions. There's, there's another question. There's something about, well, here, I'll just, I'll bring this up now. This is from uh, Lisa. She says at multiple points, Norman acknowledges his distrust of his own senses, particularly when faced with an elusive fish. He has a firm conviction that belief precedes perception or knowledge is Norman's beautiful imagination along with his negative flip side, his inability or unwillingness to see harsh realities in his brother, his metaphorical right hand. Also, does this question make any sense out of my head? (laughs) The question, I believe, does make sense out of your head, Lisa. But what's interesting to me, and we'll turn to the question, you know, proper in a second. It's interesting to me how often people are talking and asking about Norman's 
unwillingness or inability to see the harsh realities and his brother to use Lisa's phrase. That surprised me. Is that how you read the book? Either of you, Tim, is that how you read the book that Tim, that uh, Norman doesn't? Uh, maybe you don't, maybe you also don't see the realities in the harsh realities in Paul, but is that, I mean, do you read the book? Like he's re- refusing to see the harsh realities of his brother? Not at all. Yeah. So me neither. That kind of, that's, to the, that perspective has been surprising to me. Heidi, do you? I do within the story, like Norman, the narrator doesn't, he, in his memory, at least he wouldn't listen to the desk sergeant. He, he wouldn't directly challenge Paul. He, he kept, he keeps talking about, to her point, I believe this about Paul. He believes his own perception of Paul more than he believes the evidence that Paul's life is disintegrating in front of him. And he wants and chooses to see him as the master fisherman, the master of an art, rather than like the man heading off a cliff. And yeah, but, but that- Paul, the narrator now, or excuse me, Norman, the narrator, not like the, the old man writing the story acknowledges that he missed it. And so the old man sees Paul. The young man, I think, was willfully blind. I don't know, Heidi, because remember when Norman, within the story, not the narrator out of the story, not the old man, asks Paul if he needs help. On a couple of occasions, he sees the troubles. He has heard the rumors that he's gotten in deep with this big gambling game. And he twice asks him if there's anything that he can do. He then also bails him out of jail. Um, and I, I think it's uncomfortable for him to face, but I think we've got evidence within the text that he, that he does see it. He doesn't want to, but I think he does. But he doesn't act. And, that, and he talks about his, his desire to see him a certain way. And I, I say this, I can think of two separate people in my life today that I think need help, like help. They're troubled people and they're heading for a fall and I don't do anything about it. Like nothing. And I, Is it me and Tim? Like, yeah, <laughs> definitely you and Tim. <laughs> That's hilarious. Is, is this is this you finally doing something about it? Well, Time for the intervention, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, you podcast too yes, much. Seriously. Um, it's not you and Tim. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> um but and I I should. And so I think that he I think he sees it, but not enough. And I, I, and he, but he acknowledges that within the narrative, he keeps talking about, about how he deliberately closed his eyes. I think he asks for help, but it's clear that he doesn't ask the right questions and that he knows it. He asks him if he wants money. Well, I don't, but that's okay. So, he says as the narrator later in his life, we talked about this, I want to say last week or no, maybe it was the first episode. He says, I very specifically, I still do not understand my brother. And this mm-hmm. is the narrator years later looking back. So he's never, he has not come to a, a more clear understanding of who his brother is or what's troubling him. And I don't, 
and and yet and yet he has he has this ability to look back at everything that happened um and i don't think that i don't know i want to put this i think there's a difference between not knowing how to help someone because you don't understand them and recognizing like identifying or being unable to see the harsh realities. So like, do you I, two see it go ahead. as a failure of per, a failure of action, but not of perception? Do you think he failed to act, but he knew all along that Paul was in trouble? Is that more how you interpret it? I think, yeah. I, I, okay. uh, to be honest with you, I, the idea that he doesn't know all along that his brother's in trouble I I would never I can I can't even fathom it like it did it um but that willful to me, blindness though is kind of what she's saying right the, yeah well yeah but I take you that's what I also take issue with I think Tim mm-hmm. does too I think I don't think that I think he doesn't know what to do I think I think he is fully aware of what his brother is walking walking himself into but doesn't know why and thus doesn't know how to help him okay. So a failure to act, but not a failure to perceive. Would you say, I will just, I'll speak for myself. I think that Norman would act if he knew what to do. Yeah. Yes. So I think he knows that Paul is in trouble. And I think that he does not know because I don't know that anybody knows what he should do. Can I, can I just tell a story? That's, I, think, kind of, the, I think that's I think, the tragedy of, for his parents. Sorry, go ahead. I had um, breakfast with a friend of mine this morning. His son is at college. And his son is by all counts, like, I mean, he was raised in a Christian home. He's a, he's a good kid. But he's kind of just stepping away from the church. He's not going to, you know, the, the kind of ministry. He's not as a kind of like, um, methodical and attending this, you know, church group that, um, exists on campus. And my friend and his wife are, have, are kind of struggling about what to do. The husband, excuse me, the wife is very worried and wants to talk about it with her son a lot, a lot, a lot. The father, my friend, sees the same issue in his son that his wife sees. And I think he doesn't know what to do about it. But I think undergirding that is this kind of belief that, you know what? My son, I think maybe like Paul in the story, my son is behind the wheel. And if I try in some way to kind of put my hands on the wheel, it will do more harm than good. That's what, and I think that that might be analogous to how Norman feels about Paul. If Paul is willing to kind of, if Norman can offer help and he can be there when, if Paul, takes him up on that offer. But if Norman tries to take the wheel from Paul, it'll, it'll be worse. That's how I kind of read this exchange. But 
earlier, like with the desk sergeant scene, I keep harping on this. I get what you're saying, but he, he specifically says, I'd already heard more than I wanted. Maybe one of our ultimate troubles was that I never wanted to hear too much about my brother. And then on the next page, he he says, I was confused from trying to rise suddenly from molecules of sleep to an understanding of what I did not want to understand. Hmm. I, th- I think, to me, it seems clear that what he's saying is, I don't want to know about the trouble Paul's in. I just want to go fishing with him. But I think to your point, he might know anyway. But I I think he knows, like he knows, but doesn't want to. And so just thinks fishing to, to like he, he wonders if fishing can save him. Like that's the Paul he wants oh, to remember. Okay. So that, that is gone. That's without question to in my mind. Right. Um, that's why I think that that's why I think they go fishing. Right. So like there's that line where it says I think so too. Early in the book, my father was very certain, I think this is it. My father was very sure about certain matters pertaining to the universe. To him all good things, trout as well as eternal salvation come by grace and grace comes by art and art does not come easy. And that's that's why there's so much in here about um the line between religion and fishing not right. being, you know, be those things being intertwined and the idea of art are fishing as an art. And so the logic there suggests that for them, if they take him fishing, if they get him on the water, it's going to be the salve that he needs. And in the end, that's not the right. case. I mean, I think that that's why he, he, I don't, I don't, I think like a lot of people, he doesn't want to know all the stories. Like, I don't think he wants to know everything, but he knows enough and he accepts enough to know that he needs to get him out on the water. And that's why I think it's so important that, you know, I mean, that's why this is a book about going on the water and not about all this other stuff in between you know, we talked about whether this could have been a novel and yeah, it could have been, but every scene with Paul is basically on the water. Right. Um, or except the one, I guess that's, you know, one or two here and there because those scenes in the water are the attempt at, you know, salvation, the, 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 their attempt to provide a setting where Paul can, you know, be saved. And they've got it. And, and, you know, in part, they got to get him. I, I think that's why there is such a constant pursuit um, for um, Jesse to try to get her brother out on the water too. I mean, they've all bought mm-hmm. they've bought into this idea. I mean, I, I say that that sounds disparaging, but you know, the water is, you know, the water is where life is <laughs> is right. given, and that's why as yeah. I said last week. That's why what um, Rawhide and what Neil did is so troubling. It's a, right. it's a you know. A desecration. A desecration of it, yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't debate that he doesn't want to hear the stories or he wants to not think about it, but I think he, he knows enough and he accepts enough to try to do something about it. But the only thing he really knows how to do is put him in the water, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe we're just kind of talking around each other to a certain extent, at least. Right. Well, and I think that question of help and how do you help somebody um, is it enough? Is art the connection between art and nature? Is it really a means of grace? Like that is the whole mystery and contemplation of the novel. So, you know, you can take a stand one way or the other, but there's going to be a counterpoint <laughs> because it's a very yeah. 
delicate story um, that doesn't answer the questions that the threads that are thrown out into the water, right? It's like the story is like fishing. It throws these threads out and then sees if it catches something. So was it was it always enough? Was fishing always enough or was fishing never enough? I don't know. The story mm. doesn't answer that question. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's <laughs> kind of the kind of the uh, yeah the whole point. Yeah, um, there's a question related to that that might be worth addressing. I guess if we can find it. Um, okay, let's try that. I think this might be related to it. So this comes from Beth, another conversation starter, another person with that little mug next to their, their name. Um, <laughs> she says this probably doesn't have an answer, but as much as I do love this book dearly, the question I am left with, and the thing that I'm always haunted by, is the reason for both Norman and Paul's lack of faith. Um, let's see here. Their, their pastor father's not heavy handed, either literally or figuratively as a Presbyterian minister, he could have easily fallen to the common tendency to focus on correct theology to the exclusion of love, but didn't. He was unusually balanced by a love of beauty. The family had close relationships. And, um, so while the natural world they lived in was lovely, the social world of Montana at the time was an opposite kind of formation and reading his accounts of joining. Well, this is, I guess about Norman himself. Um, the, the author, um, so then she said, okay, so she says, I've been thinking hard since I posted the question originally. So she's talking a lot about McLean, perhaps himself, even leaving the faith. She says, this is personal because I'm trying to raise my own sons in the same awe-inspiring environment. And it's why our family does many of the same contemplative and creative things like fly fishing and, and fly tying and fishing. We've long hoped both of these would help our children see and believe the beauty and artistry of God. And that what they would absorb from them is good theology incarnated in all the ways McLean describes. It's probably for this reason that I find the McLean boys' lack of faith disturbing. I wonder though if maybe they would have been helped by a little clearer line between fly fishing and religion. But we humans too often divide things up too much. Perhaps the ditch they fell in was that fishing became the religion and therefore idolatry. Takes us back to the idol the idolatry question. Um, what do you what do you guys think of this? I mean, is the is that is does this is is Norman's problem going back to the original question from the beginning that, or I guess our second question that he doesn't he he idolizes the water he idolizes fishing too much and therefore the the redemption or the salvation of his brother is not possible because they're they're idolizing the power of the water if you will i've tried to i try to think of how the, what the question actually reminded me of <laughs> mm-hmm. if if Fly fishing has become an idol. It is not recognized by Paul, by Norman, or even their father. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I mean, when Paul is fishing at the end and Paul's father was watching them, there's not a single word of condemnation or judgment about Paul's ability or his task at hand. So. If we're going to apply, if we're going to ask the question, has fly fishing become an idol for this family? We're going to have to apply it from outside the book, like from ourselves. And um, I'm not willing to do that to this book. Like I, I kind of want to let it um, assess itself. Now the, the the other question of like should there be 
closer strings tied between religion and fly fishing. Or more, as she actually says, just more of a distinction between them, clearer lines between them. Oh, a clear, oh, a clearer line between them, not a clearer linking line, a clearer differentiating line. Yeah, because as the book says at the beginning, um, they're so tied together. Right, right. Boy, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Well, it's, uh, you know, one of the things that I like about that opening line is that when you first read it, there's a colloquial sort of nature to it. Like, you know, we talk about, you know, basketball was his religion or books to their religion. You know, it's kind of a thing people say, but then as you go on, you kind yeah. of realize, well, maybe that is a tragic part of the story. Maybe, maybe the distinction between them really was n- needed to be there. But then at the end of the yeah. story, everything comes back together again. So that. I, you know, I don't know that the book is actually saying that because by the end, you know, the river, um, all things are merging into one and the river runs through it. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, you know, uh, I, I, I think in, in every variation of Christian theology, there is a, there's a conundrum and the conundrum is, what is the relationship between the natural and the, the special? I'm, those are kind of the Presbyterian words that I would choose. What is the relationship between an art whose rules and whose graces have come from the kind of like accumulated wisdom of the practitioners of that art? And the people who practice that art can be absolute masters as fishermen, as blacksmiths, as piano players, without any knowledge whatsoever of the special revelation of God, right? Mm -hmm. So what is the relationship between those natural gifts and arts, like fly fishing in the case of this book, and the special revelation of God as revealed in the scriptures, in the church, in Christ himself? That is a profound riddle that from Orthodox to Catholic to Protestant low and Protestant high, all have struggled to show what the relationships relationship is between those two things, the natural and the special graces. I think this family did it in a particular way. And I think in a way that I find exceptionally compelling, exceptionally compelling. Um, I don't know. I'm unwilling to say if that connection would have been drawn by Paul and Norman's father and by Paul and by Norman with greater craft that Paul would not have like ended up in the situation that he ended up in. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think if that line was drawn, if that relationship was drawn with great dexterity and beauty, I think Paul, because he's a, a human being with a will, I kind of think Paul might have chosen the same things that he chose anyway. Hmm. And I wish it wasn't the case, but I think it was, I think it is the case. Heidi, do you want to add anything to this? Oh man. I, <laughs> <laughs> so there's so many layers of what's going on in that question. Um, and as a mom, I deeply resonate with the, the fear that I mean, my kids are 13 and 10 and I am 
like obsessed with what can I do like to keep my kids in the faith in this fallen world like that is a very big question and it is easy because this is a story that contemplates the mysteries of faith and death and love and um to then ask the question what was the failure um and it's very common in modernity, although that it has not been common for most of human history to look to the parents for the answer to the children walking away from the faith. That is how we look at mm-hmm. it today. That is not how most of human history would ever look at someone walking away from the faith. They would not look at the right. parents and say, how did they fail? So um, that's, that's, that's a Freudian idea. So that's pretty new and coming from a pretty evil man. So, (laughs) um, um, bringing out the big guns. That's right. Um, I mean, you, not for it. Yeah. Yes. Well, (laughs) I could go a lot of different ways with that (laughs) comment, but I'm not going to. Um, (laughs) um, the the thing though about this story, just to take it back into the story instead of coming out of the story, as you pointed out, Tim, which I thought that was really brilliant. to take it back into the story, one of the whole points of this story is Norman has no idea if anything could have saved Paul. And by extension, then, that becomes every human story. Could I have been saved? Could I have avoided that? What could I have done differently? What, what could someone have done to save me? What, what does it take to be, what does it even mean to be saved? So those are, those are the questions of the story. And so, like we've been talking about, that he throws out these these fishing lines into the mysteries of life, and he doesn't hand us the big fish. Hmm. And so that we have to, in coming at this story, say, I'm not going to find it in this book. And also knowing that this man, Norman, who wrote the book, Norman, the author, is a different person than Norman, the narrator. Mm-hmm. And also that Norman the man, Norman, both the narrator and the author lived a lot of life other than just what happened to Paul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are other relationships that can shed light on this too, like his relationship with his father, who he says he, you know, there's moments when even though he's probably closer to him than any man on earth, he still doesn't understand him. Right. And it, there seems to be this, uh, you know, it's interesting because the original question about whether or the original discussion point from a, several minutes ago, but whether or not um, Norman, whether, how did you phrase it? The idea that it's um, action or a failure of action or a failure of perception. perception. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because are these, when we talk about this, are we accusing him of something? Like, are we accusing Norman of being a failure? Norman. When we no. talk about this? Like, because that's the way I read some of those, the questions, like, and then I read these comments, like they're accusing Norman of, of like failing his brother and, 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 uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, right. So, so I guess, but then the whole book is telling us about how you can't understand another person right. and, and like what they're trying to find is the common places, right? Like the water, I think one of the reasons it's so inextricably bound to their religion is because it's a commonplace. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're after a sort of like common mission and you're in a place that you enjoy together, even, even as you're doing things independently. And like, it's, 
builds friendship and relationship and all those sorts of things. And so I, I don't really remember what I was going to say, but. Right. If whether it was a, I, I think that's a really good question, David, an important question. And I, I think that's one of the, one of the kind of underlying beliefs that this story challenges and contemplates, meditates on how, if, if it is, if we are all fishing alone, right, can we help each other? And what does it take to actually help each other? And I, and I think that it, it, this story uncovers some very deep anxieties in human souls, because then we start asking, just like we do whenever we read great literature, we start asking the same question. Who do I know who's troubled? How could I help them? What should I be doing? So what did Norman do wrong is the next leap. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the next leap. And I think the story keeps inviting us to not take that leap. Yes. Like to not yeah. make it a case of whose fault is it yeah. then. Yeah, and, I think that's why I was, yeah, I like, I think this is what you're saying is really good. I, I, has, I had this kind of like response to the original question, like, I don't, I don't understand Right. It doesn't seem like the point of the book, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and so I think that's maybe why I was personally reading it like, wait, no, of course he sees what's wrong with his brother. It's, I, oh, no, that makes a lot of sense. But I think it's just that reader response. I get it too, of like, oh, he just thought after all that, he lost him. So what did he do wrong? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Like that, and that's really frightening. That's like terrifying. And I'll say, yeah, that's a different question, though. Yes, yes, and especially to parents. Oh my gosh, they were Presbyterian ministers yeah. and like really good parents. So maybe it was their fault. Like it was like this. And I think that that is exactly what the story is contemplating. The story is going there all the time. What do I do with the gap between what happened and how I really wanted to help? There was this gap there. Yeah. What happened? And and Norman's like, that's the river. Yeah, well, I, but also it's that despite the best intentions of the river, right? Like, yes. Despite the despite the possibilities of the river, despite the hope that is in the river, the situation doesn't always end the way you want it to. You're haunted by it. It's a deep place. It's a place where you can lose your footing. It's a place where you can get lost. It's a place where you can find salvation. But it is not like the river, the mystery of life, God, faith, all of those things that we keep talking about that that can't be named that that rep that the river represents like the whole invitation of this story is just stay in stay in the gap don't try to turn it into some kind of moral lesson yeah yeah tim do you want to add anything to this i i want to give silently nodding. Um, i'm silently nodding I, I think what heidi is saying is one of the hardest and most important lessons in life. I, I mean, it is so <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I mean, I, I gave a talk about this at the Sears City Institute because when I taught at Gutenberg, I would see two types of responses from parents when their freshman daughters were for the first time, you know, like calling themselves feminists. And their freshman sons were drinking their first beers when they were 20 years old, you know, and they would like, the parents would hear about it. And there was this 
I saw it over and over that the responses were either, what have I done wrong? What grave error have I made in my parenting that pushed my child to make these choices? Or the other one was, we have done the very best that we could, that we could, and my child and I want them to choose the good and I will advise them to choose the good and I will love them regardless of what they choose. But ultimately the choosing is, is theirs. It falls to them. And I think that I don't want to say that parents don't have an influence over their kids. Of course they do. But the response to a young person, um, the desire to blame oneself for a child's poor choices, boy, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Hmm. You know, and I totally get the reasons why people want to do that, but it is just, it's really dangerous. We should address this one final question I want to bring up. Uh, we're running out of time, so I want to, I want to move on. I know it feels abrupt, but um, I think we... We say enough on the on the question for me to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. This comes from Mark. He emailed it in, and um, I, I think it's related enough that I want to make sure we address it. He says there are. How do you feel about all the references to geologic time in the story? What do you make of of all those references? He has a comment here that I want to withhold from you for a second because I want to hear what you say. <laughs> Have you thought about this at all, Tim? You've read it a bunch. I mean, there, there are a lot of references to geologic yeah. time. There's even the very end, um, you know, the, with, with the uh, basement, the rocks, uh, the river was cut by the world's great flood and rocks over and runs over rocks in the basement of time. Sorry, been a long mm-hmm. day. Um, on some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. So there's, there's lots of references, including that one in the final graph. So what do you make of those references to geologic time in the story? Uh, I I keep returning to this notion that um how oh, it's so hard. Like I mean, it sounds really inarticulate and kind of dumb. So I think it's good for me to sound like that in this program from time to time. And I I make it a habit. Obviously, <laughs> I think that there's this um. I keep going back to that kind of like theological concept of natural grace and special grace. And I, I do think that the natural world, I mean, even says in Romans one, that we look at the natural world and we can discern things about God from the order that we see therein, the beauty, the beauty and the majesty. And I think that this book is chiefly concerned with natural grace. It just doesn't talk about it. It's just not its topic. Special grace is just not its topic. And so I think that closing the story with talking about the kind of immortal words that are written on the basement of time and the, and the drops that have, you know, touched the stones there, I think it is a way of hearkening to the eternal that we can see in the creation. And yeah, that that's the best I can do, absent a PhD thesis <laughs> dissertation. 
<laughs> Heidi? Um, yeah, I think that you didn't stumble as much as you thought you were going to because that made a lot of sense that there are these echoes of eternity that are represented by nature. Um, mm -hmm. And that in talking about the eternal stones and the river eternally running through it, that is the closest that Norman McLean gets to saying God, to saying eternal. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's also then this sense in which that the landscape itself is the conduit between the particular nature of these individual relationships and the universal nature of what it means to be human on this enduring planet. And so the contemplation of the landscape is kind of the, the how we get to one of the ways in which he contemplates the eternal, one of the ways in which he um, equates God with nature. He talks at the yeah. end about how all the people in his life have, have died, right? That they are mm -hmm. gone, but he still um, reaches out to them, I think is how it says. And then the very next thing is that paragraph at the end where he says he goes fishing. Mm -hmm. While he's fishing, all the existence uh, fades to a being with my soul and memories and the sounds of the Blackfoot River and the four-count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise. Um, and I think that that sense of timelessness also ties him to, it's meant to, there's the God connection, but there's also the, this, the larger story of these people that he loves, um, that they're mm -hmm. not, we can't understand them. And yet there's a sort of eternal connectivity between them. Um, and that the river and the rocks and the words sort of represent that. And so I, so I, so I, and I think that that, that they're tied through sort of a sort of immortal, you know, I, I, I think, as you said, it's the closest thing he says to God. So I think he's essentially saying that they're tied together through, you know, something spiritual without saying that it's something spiritual. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think so tying too. these people together, you know, he can't, we can't know each other truly maybe ever, but uh, mm -hmm. certainly in this plane of existence. And even when we try the hardest, we try our absolute hardest and we try to go to a place where there's connection, such as on the river, then even then we, it, there's, there's failure even there. But and despite that, there is a sort of eternal connection between people, I think is what he's sort of suggesting there. Mm. And, and, you know, it might've been more hopeful if he comes right out and says, God, <laughs> um, but I think that, I mean, do you read the ending as hopeful or not hopeful? Um, I read it as hopeful. <laughs> or neutral. But, and it's not neutral. I, I, it's hopeful, but it's mournful to me. Yes, perfectly said. Yeah. Yeah, as if to say, it's, it's as if to say, we, we can't know each other here, but who knows what's beyond. <laughs> Right. Well, and blessed are those who mourn, right? Like mourning is not despair. Mourning has, mm -hmm. still has the ability to love and that's therefore redemptive. So I do think that it's hopeful. Um, 
And rocks and water are primal, like very primal. They they touch the human soul, the permanence of rock, the changeability, and yet the the it, who is it that says this? No, Heraclitus says you can't you, you can't step in the same river twice. Um, so the river water is always changing, and yet it always looks the same. And it has steps to it, whereas these rocks have this permanence and this solidity. And so rocks and water are like very primal, and so he is connecting to. Um, a long line of um, nature's existence and the humans who have come in and out, you know, um, and seen the same rocks and the same water. There's a connectivity there as well. Well, Sarah Montgomery made a little allusion to it, to this thing that keeps coming up um, in one of her comments. She mentions. Romans one eighteen says, "Isn't the fact that Paul gets natural revelation but misses supernatural revelation doesn't it make this book even more tragic?" I think from within the world of the book, which is something that I think that we that the three of us really try to emphasize that the rule, the world that the book creates, um, are the rules by which we should judge it by. And I think the answer to the question in that light is no. I don't think that it sees that Norman sees it as a tragedy within the world that he's created in the book. Now, from the outside, might we see that as tragic? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think the characters within the world think it's a tragic. I think they think it's, I think exactly what Heidi said. It's hopeful, but it's also mourning. Well, should we end there? I think so. I think that's <laughs> hour and fifteen minutes in. Good amount of yeah. questions answered. I don't know. I don't, it seems like you got the right place to end. Do you want to add anything, either of you, about this book that that we didn't address, Tim? I'll at least make sure you get a chance to say something about it. I I entered the reading of this book and the podcast discussions not really anticipating that um, this book would be as loved as it apparently is. I've, I've gotten a lot of comments about how, you know, kind of off the air about how much people have enjoyed this book. And that makes me so glad. And today's Q and a was more lively than I thought it was going to be. I think that we kind of, Tell me if you guys think I'm wrong. I think, I think this book, kind of, it, press, it presses on something. Hmm. And I think that... Yeah. Um, Confusion. I, I didn't know that it was going to press on... I mean, it presses on things for me, but I am happy that I'm not the only one who had those things, you know, kind of um, jarred within me. I think to help to the to Heidi's point earlier, there there's a sense that there's something universal about it, about mm-hmm. some of the fears that he is uh, cons- consumed by, and some of the you know the reflections that he has late in his life. And we all sort of have people like Paul, and sometimes we, you know, maybe we've been in Paul's situation, and something did work out for us. But there's something universal about it, and maybe we all have sort of the a river, you know something that bring makes us alive like Eric Little and running in chariots of fire. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one thing I was thinking about a lot is that the idea of running, making him in chariots of fire. He talks about how running makes him feel the presence of God and feels like he's worshiping. I'm paraphrasing. And the, right. that sort yeah. of comes across in the same way in this book. Um, and, and I wonder if, for me, I wonder if Paul, his inability to associate to, to truly find peace on the river is what keeps sending him back to the dark side, so to speak, that he never is able to oh, wow. sort, of, sort of feel on the river, what you'd think that he should feel or, or experience based on his skill on the river. Like there's a disconnect between mm-hmm. his ability to catch big fish in a really graceful way, but it doesn't give him the grace that it feels like it should. And so he keeps looking for something to fulfill him. Yeah. So in that case, in that case, David, then I, I think an answer to Sarah's question in light of one, in light of Romans one eighteen, even the fact that Paul gets natural, gets natural revelation, but misses supernatural revelation. You could make a case based on what you just said that within the book, yet it is tragic then that Paul can't see it, but yeah, there's, that he's, he longs for something that fishing can take him right up to the cusp of it, but he can't see beyond it. And that drives him back into this kind of underworld. You know, I can see that. And, and then for, for Norman, I think that's why the relationship with his wife is so important. And then his parents relationship as well, because I think that that sort of the connections they have, like the idea of never losing, you know, the, the, the notion is we're not going to lose sight of each other. We're going to stay connected. He and Jesse say that. And there's this awareness in Norman that that connection is so important because the river, you know, he's aware that the river is mm-hmm. not fulfilling something within himself. And so, Jesse yeah. and his work and things like that do ful- fulfill things that he needs. Right. And, but Paul doesn't have that. And so he's trying to seek that out. And that's why I think the, the disconnect between, or the, the comparison is made between Paul and Norman and Jesse and Paul not having a Jesse. You know, I think that, I think that maybe Paul recognizes that, that Norman has, that's why he's concerned for Paul's mar- Norman's marriage because he recognizes that Norman has something that gives him life beyond the river. Yeah. Heidi, do you want to add anything before we go? Now that we, Tim and I have entered into a new conversation. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just loved it. I loved it so much. I'm going to keep rereading it. Thank you for the opportunity. I wouldn't probably have read this without the show. So I'm super grateful. I loved it. So, so thank does you. this mean we all are okay with trusting Tim's taste now? Like... I've always... <laughs> I don't know why this keeps coming up. I've always trusted Tim's taste. <laughs> well, usually he's just recommending really long this Russian sounds novels. So. Like a you problem. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, come on now. We're I'm reading. Just, we're about to read the sun also rises. So I know clearly. Yeah, I trust. Man, him. I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell you guys we're right now. To, I mean, just you already know. In it. the future, we're going to. <laughs> yeah, that book. I. <laughs> I. I'm going to go into like a full on defense mode for that book. It's just, it is not, it is not, it is very different from this book. And I think a lot of people are going to say, Tim, 
why didn't you just quit with a reverence <laughs> away from your recommendations then? Because <laughs> the off the rise is tough boy. Well, we'll put the boxing gloves on and we'll see what happens. I'm right there with you though. So okay. Heidi had to go. She had to go pick her kids up from school. So we should probably log off too. Um, Tim, again, thanks for the recommendation. Thanks for being passionate about this book. I think it was a, a great addition. Uh, don't forget next week, we are going to beginning, be beginning uh, Peace Like a River. And that will take us into the new year. So get ready for that. I will post the reading schedule uh, later this week. So you have some, uh, some, some time to read that before we begin. Tim, thanks as always. For Tim McIntosh and Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.